The Nikkei 225 in Japan also down close to 1%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is also off over 1%. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng now uh, is going to open um, around about um, 250 to 300 points lower. Uh, it'll be the first time it's dropped below the 19,000 level since mid-March. I'll be back tomorrow morning uh, with further updates on the business and financial situation. Stay tuned for Back Chat coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast before I go. Cloudy with occasional showers, one or two thunderstorms. Maximum temperature is going to be around 29 degrees during the day and then occasional showers tomorrow before the weather improves on Friday. There is a thunderstorm warning in force. It's 27 degrees, 87% relative humidity. Just gone 8.30. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Health officials have confirmed Hong Kong's first case of monkeypox, a 30-year-old man who's said to be in stable condition at Queen Mary Hospital. The patient recently traveled to Canada, the United States, and the Philippines before flying into Hong Kong on Monday from Manila. The Center for Health Protection's Edwin Choi urged people who might have been in contact with him to monitor their health, including those who were on the same flight, PR300. He also called on inbound travelers to report any health issues upon arrival. It is quite difficult to screen out monkeypox in the airport, but we will surely enhance our health education and promotions and reminders to all inbound travelers that in case they have any symptoms suggestive of any kind of infectious disease, they have to report to our colleagues in the um, port health divisions at the airport or in other uh, ground-causing boundaries. So it may help us to intercept any case of um, infectious disease as early as possible. Most cases of monkeypox are mild and clear up on their own within a few weeks. Symptoms include a rash, fever, chills, swollen lymph nodes, exhaustion, muscle pain, and severe headaches. The daily COVID tally has fallen below the 10,000 mark, with Hong Kong reporting 9,373 new infections. 186 of them were imported. More than 2,900 patients are being treated in public hospitals, 14 of them in intensive care, and nine more patients with COVID have died. Overseas now, an emergency session of the Security Council has been taking place at the United Nations in New York to discuss the situation at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. UN inspectors are recommending a security zone be set up immediately to shield the facility from fighting. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, set out the conditions for the plant to operate safely. As a first step... Russian and Ukrainian forces must commit not to engage in any military activity towards the plant site or from the plant site. The Zaporizhia facility and its surroundings must not be a target or a platform for military operations. As a second step, an agreement on a demilitarized perimeter should be secured. Specifically, that would include a commitment by Russian forces to withdraw all military personnel and equipment from that perimeter and the commitment by Ukrainian forces not to move into it. Britain's new Prime Minister Liz Truss has appointed the top positions to her cabinet. 
Kwasi Kwarteng will be the finance minister, Suella Braverman the home secretary, and James Cleverly will run the foreign office. It's the first time none of Britain's main offices of state will be held by a white man. Earlier in her first speech as British Prime Minister, Ms. Truss said Britain faced severe global headwinds caused by Russia's war in Ukraine and the COVID pandemic, but she was convinced it could ride out the storm. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Danny Gittings. Today we're looking at monkeypox after Hong Kong identified the first imported case of the disease. A 30-year-old man who arrived here from the Philippines on Monday. He also previously visited the United States and Canada. The man developed a rash at the end of last month, followed by swelling in his lymph nodes and a sore throat. He's now in stable condition at Queen Mary Hospital, and no one has been identified as his close contact. The case comes as the government expects to receive its first shipment of monkeypox vaccines this month. More than 52,000 cases of the disease have been recorded in the global outbreak, according to WHO figures on Monday. But transmission is slowing in the virus hotspots of Europe and the United States. So how transmissible is monkeypox? Do we need to be worried? And what's happening in other parts of the world? After 9.15, we'll look at a new arrangement at public dental clinics aimed at cutting long queues for its services. So let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk. That's backchat at rthk.hk. Leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Or, of course, you can call us. Our number 233-88266. That's 233 now joining our discussion this morning is Dr. Teresa Wang, a clinical microbiology and infection specialist, and Jaya Dantas, a professor of international health at Curtin University in Perth. Good morning to the both of you, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, Dr. Wang, do we need to be worried about this case? Um, I think at the moment, um, not really, because we have been expecting to have monkeypox cases imported since um, the outbreak globally. So in a way, we have mentally prepared for this, and we are also well aware that the monkeypox is going to be um, coming from overseas. So it was lucky for us to pick it up as we have expected, instead of identifying it um, but having a local case um, that um, we didn't know about the source. So I think at the moment it's still uh, under our control and uh, we shouldn't be too worried about monkeypox being spread out in Hong Kong at this moment. Now everyone who was on the flight with this um, with this patient and uh, airport workers have been uh, sort of advised, haven't they, to, to watch their health. Um, uh, how worried should uh, people who've been uh, passengers on the same plane be and what advice would you give to somebody in that situation? Right. According to what we have um, studied about monkeypox, especially with this outbreak, it shows that actually this strain of monkeypox um, has got to be transmitted with a close contact or um, a prolonged period of contact, intimate contact. So a lot of them, um, not all of them even though, um, actually has the disease that transmitted through sexual contact. But um, apparently airborne, um, infection association with this monkeypox at this moment is not high 
um, as we have expected. So I think we can keep an eye on all those doing health surveillance. If any one of them developing symptoms, we can um, isolate them accordingly and give uh, treatment if needed. And uh, Dr. Wang, you just said we don't need to be worried about uh, this case at the moment. And uh, the government has now activated the uh, first of its uh, three-tier monkeypox response plan, uh, which involves strengthening health surveillance measures at the border and distributing information about the virus. So is this enough for now? Um, I think it is enough for now. Um, I think getting the people being aware and actively reporting to the authority is what we could do at the moment because um, monkeypox, if it's um, on the phase, it's easy to tell. But a lot of the time, as we have observed with this outbreak, many of them are having the symptoms over their genitalia, which is the private part. So it's not easy to detect to start with. So getting the people to be aware of this, um, telling them to report to the authority as soon as possible, and we strengthen our surveillance um, over the border is what I suppose to be the very sensible and the first step to be done at this juncture. Right. Uh, at yesterday's uh, France conference, uh, health officials also said it's uh, difficult to detect monkeypox cases among arrivals at the uh, airport. Um, so so um, from what you're saying, Dr. Wang, does it mean uh, we just have to rely on inbound travellers uh, reporting their symptoms on arrival? Um, I think because we, we don't have any effective um, investigation, it's unlike um, COVID that we have a rapid test or we have a PCR that can be easily done at this juncture. So um, I think active reporting by those who are coming into Hong Kong is what we could do at this moment. But if we have more cases, if we have... Um, detected a local outbreak or whatever, then we could strengthen um, other um, strategy that we could help to detect, say, like close contact. We have to do um, further investigations and things like that. But at this juncture, just a single reported case, I think we could still wait and see. All right. Uh, Professor Dantes, um, do authorities in Australia also have difficulty detecting monkeypox cases at airports? return travellers arrive, unless they have some signs or symptoms, it is very difficult to have surveillance and say confidently that it's a monkeypox case, because this is identified only with a PCR test. So what we know since about July this year is that most of them have been return travellers. There's heightened awareness among the gay and bisexual community, especially those who attended the Pride events in Belgium and the Canary Islands in Europe and are returning back to different countries of the world. And that is why we, we have the surveillance measures of all communicable diseases, and COVID was there in the last two years and continues to be there. But with monkeypox, we declared it as a communicable disease of national significance on the 26th of July in Australia. And are you now seeing community transmission in, in Australia? A apart from cases involving travellers, are, are, you, are you seeing tra transmission within Australia? We have uh, returned travellers and we have a small number of cases. We have about 124 cases. Most of the cases are in the eastern states of Victoria and New South Wales. And we are monitoring because of the pre 
previous HIV pandemic, we are working closely with the AIDS communities and with our health departments in each state. We have a decentralized health system in Australia. We have the federal health department, which has declared this as a communicable disease of national significance, and that procures the vaccines for Australia. But then the rollout and the monitoring and surveillance is also taking place in every state. In the other states, the numbers are very small. The state that I live in, Western Australia, we have about five cases. Well, as in, the, in Victoria and in New South Wales, the cases are much higher, but not more than 65 or 70. All right. Now for, for Hong Kong's uh, first imported uh, monkeypox case, uh, we have been told that the patient had uh, taken part in high-risk activity while he was overseas. Um, Professor Dantes, can you tell us what that might mean when it comes to uh, the transmission of monkeypox? So what has happened is, in this outbreak, we know that these pride events where a lot of the gay community gathered, Statistics say that about 80,000 gay men attended the events in the Canary Islands. And when you say high-risk activities, it is unprotected sex, it is sex with multiple partners. So these are events that take place in different parts of the world. But these pride events, at this time, only when the people returned did they have symptoms. The first symptoms that are symptoms of headache, and body ache and swollen limb glands. So these are symptoms that can occur with other viral infections also. But then when they develop the rash and the lesions, that's when the awareness arises and the lesions can get quite painful. In this outbreak and in the outbreak in Nigeria a few years ago, there were these genital lesions where my other panelist has spoken about. So there is an awareness among epidemiologists and health departments that this is something for the community to be aware of. So it's something that we, with uh, monkeypox, there is an awareness since the last five decades. So it is not new. It has been in only seven or eight endemic countries of Africa, but this time there's a global outbreak to 100 countries. But the numbers are still low. As of yesterday, the CDC had the count at 54,900 with 20,000 of those cases in the United States. So I think it's actually, there, there is awareness now globally among these communities. They know that they have to be vigilant and they have to learn from what happened in, at that time and how they dealt with the previous HIV outbreak. All right. Let's go back to Dr. Wang for a moment. Um, just now, uh, I sort of mentioned uh, how um, uh, Hong Kong's first imported monkeypox case, uh, we, we have been told that uh, the patient had taken part in high-risk activities. Um, and do you, what do you think that actually means, Dr. Wang? Is it uh, activities that uh, Professor Dantes was talking about? Yeah, I think um, as we have understand through this outbreak, a lot of them actually are engaged in um, sexual activities uh, with men, having sex with men, the lesbian community or the transgender um, um, population that they have engaged in um, some unprotected sex um, contact. So those are actually how we define the high-risk um, activities at this moment, I think. But for the details, we will have to um, look into the case. So that's what we guess should be um, what to be interpreted as the high-risk activity at this juncture. And the government has bought some vaccinations, but so far they're not actually vaccinating anyone. Um, do, do, do you think that high-risk groups should be vaccinated? 
Um, I think it's um, sort of debatable because um, I don't know how many doses the government has purchased. And at the moment, I think they prioritise to those that have increased risk of being exposed. So um, it includes the um, healthcare workers, um, the laboratory workers who would definitely come into contact with um, the monkeypox patients if they've got admitted and have to handle their specimens. So um, if we have enough um, vaccines to cover additional people, of course, I think the high-risk community, what I mean by is the um, um, men having uh, sex with men's um, population, the transgender um, um, and the bisexual community, they should also receive the vaccination if they're willing to. So, um, generally speaking, if we have enough doses, we should also consider vaccinating everybody, but it all depends on the cost effectiveness. So we have to see and follow on to see how the outbreak would evolve in Hong Kong at this moment. All right, uh, Dr. Wang, I know you have to go. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Teresa Wang, a clinical microbiology and infection specialist. Um, now I have an email here from a listener, Leon. He says... Um, like the spread of HIV in the 1980s, is monkeypox mainly being spread by gay men? Um, and Dr. Dantes, I, I think we, we answered that question earlier. Um, but uh, out of all the monkeypox cases, what is the percentage uh, of cases that uh, um, are, are uh, involve uh, gay men? In this outbreak, majority of the cases are among gay men. It's less than 700 cases in the seven endemic countries that are not among gay men. So um, this outbreak is predominantly among gay, bisexual, transgender men and men who have sex with men that, that has taken place. But what we've seen is that the outbreak has slowed. And unlike the HIV pandemic, which spread and there is no vaccine, we do have a smallpox. We have a vaccine available, so there's no need of a new vaccine. We know how the vaccine works. It has been a highly effective vaccine. We eradicated um, smallpox from many, most countries of the world uh, in two decades ago. So in many ways, we know a lot more with this outbreak. And even with the outbreak, the case numbers have sort of plateaued. In, the case numbers are still increasing, and we need to be we need to be vigilant and have surveillance measures. But it has this outbreak has predominantly been among the community that we have mentioned. Now I understand that there are a lot of sort of extreme scare stories spreading overseas, and perhaps in Australia as well. Um, uh, some people are somehow trying to link monkeypox to um, COVID vaccines, and even uh, and of course um, it's been used as as, uh, as, a, as a stick to by people who have homophobia to um, who are prejudiced against gay people. Professor Dantas? Um, there, there are two. Yes, there are two issues here. One issue is about the side effects from the COVID vaccine, and I have fact-checked this, and it's misinformation. It's totally incorrect. But it's spreading so quite. It's vaccine, spreading quite wi- It's spreading quite widely. I, I, I appreciate it's completely incorrect, but uh, it, 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 this yes. is. Well, the, the problem with social media is that misinformation does spread spread in this age of social media. There is no evidence linking the COVID vaccines to monkeypox. So that's not correct at all. The monkeypox virus is something totally, totally different. And that's the, it's different. Yes, we have 
uh, aerosol uh, with um, droplets in COVID, in the case of COVID. But in this case, it requires heightened close contact through the lesions that a monkeypox patient gets or through bodily fluids and through clothes, uh, contaminated clothes. So unlike COVID, where where the Delta strain and the Omicron strain were highly infectious, monkeypox is not, not that it is infectious and communicable, but not to the extent that some of the variants of COVID were. Now, the second question that uh, you asked me is, we really have to be cautious. What we have to do is we have to spread the message accurately and effectively, but in a non-stigmatizing and a non-discriminating way. We have to learn what went wrong during the HIV pandemic because we want, we have heightened surveillance in many countries now because of the outbreak, but we also need proper messages to go to those communities most at risk. And the communities most at risk, if they feel that they have traveled to an area of high risk, that they have indulged in risky behaviors, then they need to go and get themselves tested and see if they can get the vaccine as well as prophylaxis. And if they are immunocompromised, if they also have HIV or other immunocompromised infections, then they really have to be careful in, in monitoring any symptoms that they might have. Of course, in the early days of HIV, we saw um, people shunning contact with, uh, overreacting, shunning contact with uh, gay people or people who they thought might be gay. I mean, is, is there a danger of that sort of prejudice overreaction again with monkeypox? instances of stigmatization when people have come to know that there is monkeypox case within their own circle of friends or community. But in the, in the case of HIV, because there was so much more unknown and in people still frowned upon um, homosexual community, it was different. And we didn't have the the vaccines or we didn't have the prophylaxis or we didn't have the antivirals, antiretrovirals to deal with the, the disease at that time. But it's not so in the case of monkeypox. And that is why it's important that the messaging is clear and non-stigmatizing. And this is really, really important within the community because you want to do things right this time round. The cases are still manageable in various countries. We have seen that the cases have flowed, but it doesn't mean that we have to let down our guard. We still have to have our surveillance up in our ports of entry, within our health departments, train health workers. But the health workers and laboratories have been used to doing PCR testing, and it's the same test that is used as the gold standard to uh, diagnose monkeypox. Right, and Professor Dantas, you just mentioned that uh, transmission is uh, slowing down. Um, do, you, do you have any idea uh, when monkeypox outbreak uh, will be under control? One thing about the mon- monkeypox de- disease itself, it's, it's a self-limiting disease. That means in very, very small number of cases, 1% or lower is, uh, are fatal. So most people will get all right from monkeypox and then be able to return to their normal life. They might have small scars from the lesions that they have, they have got. So in, that's what's happening. So when the outbreak started in July, 
the return travelers came back with monkeypox, but within four weeks, um, it, it's, it's a self-limiting disease, and they, they are cured of monkeypox. But the, during the time when they have the lesions, it's really, really important to isolate and men, maintain very little contact with even clo- close family members or partners or with the wider community. So I, I feel that now that we have this heightened surveillance around the world for COVID as well as for monkeypox, and we have, we have the vaccines already available, and these vaccines are produced by a company in Europe, and they have also started extra doses of manufacture, which are being rolled out to various countries. The only problem is that this vaccine is extremely expensive. The vaccine is about 100 US dollars a dose, and the WHO and Gavi, which is the vaccine distribution age, global vaccine distribution agency, are negotiating with the manufacturer to have this at a more equitable price so that all countries can have the vaccine wherever there has been an outbreak, and that's about 100 countries. This is basically the smallpox vaccine, isn't it? The, yes, the, the, the so there hasn't, hasn't been really, I mean, it's a, until now it's just been stockpiled for emergencies, hasn't it, in case um, yes. smallpox, so, re, so there hasn't been much small, need for small it. Pox vaccine, yes, because of the smallpox vaccine, we only had a small number of vaccines um, that was there, small stockpile. But because we know, we, they have the technical know-how and the capacity to, to roll out vaccine manufacturing, and that's already started. So most countries have been able to um, procure vaccines. So we were able to procure about 28,000 doses in Australia, with, which arrived a few weeks ago, and the rollout has started across states for those most at risk. And is it fair to say, I mean, we talked about how um, monkeypox is spreading. It's, it's overwhelmingly a male disease at the moment, spreading among men, and presumably there are relatively few cases among women. Yes. In this outbreak, there's relatively few cases among women or children. There's been, you can count those in, say, it's less than 15, if I'm not mistaken. But among Sorry, women, 15, among 15 globally, you're talking about 15 globally, or you mean in Australia? Globally, globally. 15 globally. So it is, it really is a sort of 98%, 99% a male disease, basically. Yes, yes. And there was a recent article in the BMJ Open, and this was a study done in central London of the monkeypox outbreak that happened in England. And basically, the current outbreak, 97%, 96 to 97% of the cases were among gay men. Right. And we, we talked about vaccination. What about uh, medication? I mean, the, there is a special medication for monkeypox, but uh, not all patients will need it, right? No, not all patients. You'll only take the uh, va- vaccine if you feel that you've been exposed to it or you've been diagnosed with monkeypox especially in the first four or five days of exposure. Right. And then currently, how many um, vaccines are there for monkeypox? There are, uh, globally, the, the most known ones are about two vaccines. One is the Genesis vaccine and the Amex 2000. But the, the one that is produced by Nordic Bavarian is the most popular one, and that's being ro- rolled out across the world because... 
you want a vaccine that is only one dose that is given subcutaneously to to the patients who have been exposed or who have tested positive to monkeypox. And it's important to remember what you were saying earlier, even without a vaccine, the fatality rate for monkeypox is very low, isn't it, right? Uh, the vast, uh, yes. overwhelming majority of patients recover with um, no side effects. Yes. So more than 90, 98% to 99% of the patients recover and uh, are cured within the four to six week mark. And uh, their lesions heal. They need, during the phase when the lesions are there and the rash is there, it can be painful. And that's when they just have to monitor the lesions, keep them clean and get, get them uh, get it treated. So they have to work closely with their family physician or their general practitioner to monitor the, the lesions. But it is self-limiting, as I say, that after a certain period of um, isolation, it, they are out of the woods in many ways. So it's a painful and unpleasant disease, but one that is very unlikely to be fatal. unpleasant the scars may the scabs and the scars may remain for some time but in in it's only in a very very small number of cases is it fatal and uh, earlier, uh, Professor Dantas, you, you mentioned uh, how it's uh, difficult to detect uh, uh, monkeypox in the community is it also because uh, it has a, a relatively long incubation period yes so till the lesions appear people think that they are having a they're having maybe a viral infection because they don't feel very well. They have uh, a fever or a body ache or swollen lymph nodes and muscle pain. But till the lesions appear, they might not know it's monkeypox. So it's really important in the first week or so if they have had these symptoms to go and get tested. And it's nowadays uh, tests are available and it's it's okay for them to go and get tested, whether it's monkeypox or any other infection. All right. All right, Professor Dantas, we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's Jaya Dantas, a professor of international health at Croton University in Perth. And in just a moment, we'll look at a new arrangement at public dental clinics that's aimed at cutting long queues for its services. Now, here's the weather. Cloudy with occasional showers and one or two thunderstorms. The top temperature will be around 30 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh easterlies. Right now, it's 27 degrees. Relative humidity, 84%. Yes, you're listening to Backchat on a Wednesday morning with our guest presenter Danny Gitchings and me, Janice Wong. Before the news, we talked about Hong Kong's first imported monkeypox case. And now let's move on to look at a new arrangement introduced this week to help reduce the waiting time outside public dental clinics. And this is in response to long queues of people recently seen waiting outside government clinics well before they opened. And some even resorted to lining up overnight to ensure they get a spot. To find out more about the arrangement. We're now joined by Ivan Lin, a community organiser from the Society for Community Organisation and medical and health services sector lawmaker, Dr. David Lam. Good morning, Mr. Lin and Dr. Lam. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the programme. Mr. Lin, this new arrangement sounds a bit complicated. Can you first tell us uh, how it works? Oh, uh, I heard it a week before that uh, the government... Uh, dental clinic is giving number tickets uh, in midnight, so uh, people don't have to wait outside to sleep outside, and 
but uh, on the other hand, uh, that means uh, the people going to the clinic have to uh, visit the clinic twice, uh, one in the midnight and one in the morning. And uh, there are people who want to uh, have the, uh, well, in case somebody that didn't show up, they might have a chance, so they, they have to queue up twice, once in the morning and once in the midnight. Right. So, so, so basically, um, let me see if I can get this right. So basically, if I want to go to the clinic, I would have to uh, uh, pre-register, uh, get a number ticket at midnight, and then uh, I go home, and then uh, in the morning I return to the clinic again and to uh, get a another ticket to to wait for my dentist appointment. Is that uh, um, yes, yes. And uh, if you can't get a ticket at uh, in midnight, uh, you might come back in the morning as well because somebody may drop out. Oh. It doesn't sound like a very efficient system. I mean, presumably you, you've heard a lot of people grumbling about this new system. They have to go yeah. in the middle of the night and then come back early in the morning. Yeah, what, what it does is that uh, there, there are no longer uh, footage that uh, show people waiting outside, uh, sleep outside. Uh, but uh, in fact, the problem haven't uh, solved. There are no uh, extra uh, capacity for the kidney. Uh, the services is still uh, very limited, so uh, people still have to wait, but uh, they, they don't have to wait uh, in the middle of the night. And this uh, new arrangement, it started uh, midnight on Monday, is that correct, Mr. Lin? Yeah, but I heard, uh, heard, it, uh, heard the new arrangement uh, weeks ago uh, from some elderly cases. Uh, Probably uh, they start implementing it in a larger scale. Right. So, what have you been hearing from elderly people? Well, it is still uh, it's still very painful to wait, uh, even if they don't have to sleep outside the clinic. But uh, going uh, home in, in midnight is not easy, and uh, also. They, they often travel uh, within different districts. Uh, for instance, there, is, there are only one clinic in the entire Hong Kong island, so uh, many cases have to travel um, uh, to another district to go back home, so it's still very painful. All right. Dr. Lam, what is your assessment of this uh, new arrangement? Yes, I think I agree, I agree with what, what Dr. Lin just now mentioned. It's not a very efficient program. And the only thing is that it helps people uh, to stop them waiting outside the dental clinic overnight. But then people have to go there twice. And when you have a tubic and you still have to go there twice, it's not a, a very good kind of a, uh, program. So I, I would suggest that they make use of a telephone registration or for the younger generation, maybe an online registration. So they just get a ticket online or through the phone and then they go to the clinic physically in the morning. That would be a much better way. Of course, at the root of the problem is that there's just a lack of, um, of, of government dentists. This is something we've talked about with you on this show, show before, that they're just not there. That's why people are having to queue up before and now have to get tickets twice. They're, they're just not enough government dentists and they only provide very basic treatment. Isn't that right? Um, uh, not exactly. Now, first of all, uh, you don't see such kind of queuing over the night um, usually. It's only in this recent few months, maybe, and that is a multifactorial issue. First of all, you have a, a piling up of backlog cases from the first few months of this year when COVID was uh, most rampant, and people just don't want to go to any places 
including clinics. That's one. And two is that we have many doctors, dentists, seconded to other parts of the Department of Health to combat the viral uh, outbreaks. So there are less dentists working in these dental clinics. So that's one thing. But at the same time, we understand that we still have sufficient number of dentists in the community. Those are, of course, mostly private practice dentists. But the thing is, how is the government planning to purchase um, or is any plan to purchase services from these private dentists uh, for the, uh, the needed people? The government's no. been doing that on experimental basis, sorry, for doctors, yes. hasn't it? But not yet for dentists. Um, not in a very successful manner. Now, most of these purchases are either done through the Department of Health directly, which is good, or through the hospital authority. And for the hospital authority, they just see which service is, uh, is having a long queue and they want to cut that queue so they outsource those services to private doctors. Now, but then um, this is not the very efficient way and it is not the very effective way of tackling what society needs most because you're only looking at the queues and not looking at the actual need of society in the long run. So a better way is what we nowadays call strategic purchasing of healthcare services. Um, it is a very common concept worldwide, and I would suggest the government consider it seriously and maybe set up a separate office to purchase um, public services for our general population. And the, the vendor, so-called, so to speak, can either be the hospital authority, the government clinics, or sometimes the private hospitals and private doctors. So that makes use, think full use of our healthcare manpower in society. It serves especially dental service as well, because uh, most dentists are actually in private practice. So if the government suddenly wants to set up, say, uh, 300 to 500 dental clinics around the territories, with all the machineries inside, that would be very, very difficult and very, very expensive. A dental clinic is different from a doctor's clinic. It requires a special chair where you sit on and it's got all the gadgets to drill your teeth and to wash it and with high power uh, suction and so on and so forth. And sometimes, most of the time, they have x-ray machines inside a clinic. So setting up a dental clinic is not as easy as setting up a, a, a medical clinic. That's why I would suggest strongly that the government at the moment, while at the same time they can certainly set up some clinics, they purchase more services from the private sector for our general population. Of course, this, is, this problem is not confined to Hong Kong. I mean, in, in Britain, for instance, again, it's, it's oh, yes. very, very difficult to get uh, public health care uh, in terms of de dental health care. There's, there's some sense in which that's seen as that um, dental services are seen as, uh, set, set, uh, as, as a lower priority than other medical services generally. Uh, when it comes to government. Right? Yes, that is a UK concept. We have that concept since well before 1997. So you can see that it's the same thing in Hong Kong and in the UK. Uh, the priority is on the the, um, the medical services, especially the emergency and the uh, like that cancer cases where people can actually die of the disease if they're not treated. But for dental services, for some reason, many years ago, the government thought that, well, it's not that serious, you don't die of a dental lesion. But wait a minute, now dental health is recognized as parts of the general health. So if people don't have good dental health, they cannot have good general health. So the concept is changing and definitely when we're now talking about developing our primary health care system, we must improve our dental services to the general population. 
a kind of public dental service. You think this situation where we play or we have placed lower priority on uh, dental services is sort of influenced by the British experience? I mean, how common is the this sort of um, second-class treatment for dental services elsewhere in the world? Is it something sort of, uh, confined to Britain and Hong Kong, or do we see it globally? Well, I think it is partly a global issue. Now, in Britain, it is like dentists are dentists and doctors are doctors. All right. Uh, doctors cannot become dentists unless you go to the dental school and, and study afresh, uh, and vice versa. But in some parts of the world, including mainland China, uh, dental surgeons are also medically trained. So they may have um, uh, more leeway in recruiting different, uh, I mean, and in, 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 in deploying dental people to study dentistry or medical dentistry, for that matter. But then, um, because we have been under British rule, for a long time, so we follow what uh, Britain has been doing. So if that is the concept uh, in UK, then that becomes the concept in Hong Kong. And of course, it is also a very practical issue that uh, dental services is expensive. And go back 50 years, 100 years, uh, we are not, we were not as affluent as now a days. So uh, to purchase enough dental services for the entire population must have been quite difficult. So we understand it wasn't easy and um, back then, the government had uh, the government had done a great job in providing most people with a public uh, general medical service and emergency medical service, but it has not yet developed to the level of dental. Uh, but nowadays, things are so different, and we believe that when we are talking about developing a primary care system, we must involve and include dental services into this primary health care system and to make it really workable for the general population. So things are changing. All right. Mr. Lin, what do you think of uh, Dr. Lam's suggestions? Well, I agree. Uh, in the short term, it's not uh, practical to, uh, well, the government should open 300 clinics, uh, but uh, in the long term, there needs to be a, a scheme like uh, we have the school dental services and there needs to be a, a, a public scheme for older adults as well because uh, their dental health is deteriorating fast. And in, in the short term, I think uh, public-private uh, public -private partnership is very important uh, to provide short-term solutions. And uh, I want to add as well, uh, although you can die off, uh, uh, you, you, uh, very seldom do people die of a dental situation, but uh, it's, uh, dental health is very important because uh, according to uh, government statistics, there are uh, half of the elderly population and have uh, uh, dental health so bad, they have a cavity, they, they can't go to bed, they have sleep uh, disturbance. So uh, that could affect uh, the mental health, the overall well-being. And also uh, dental health is linked to uh, nutrition and uh, probably linked to diabetes. So uh, it, it, you can die with it, die of it, but uh, it's still very, very important. Uh, how about giving um, people vouchers to um, giving elderly vouchers that they can use at private dentists? Is that a possibility? Uh, the government did, hasn't the government done that to some extent with medical services? Yes, we we already have the uh, elderly healthcare uh, vouchers, and uh, but there is no separate uh, voucher system uh, for dental services. Uh, I think we need to have a new scheme that uh, targeted, and uh, like uh, Dr. Lam said, uh, strategic purchasing. Uh, we need to have a new scheme that targets dental services because uh, many of the elders, they, they didn't enjoy the school uh, dental care services uh, when they're young. So uh, they, they may not.
not realize that there is a need to uh, have a regular checkup and uh, have a tip cleaning as well. So that voucher may encourage, may, con- uh, may induce some of the uh, primary dental health, uh, uh, especially in the elderly uh, population. So uh, a new scheme is needed. What about uh, Dr. Lam's suggestion uh, about the uh, queuing situation, the, the current queuing situation outside uh, public dental clinics? Uh, he suggested uh, maybe um, the introduction of a phone booking or online booking yeah. system. Uh, what do you think of that, Mr. Lin? Well, that might help uh, in the short term, but uh, there are a lot of demand in the community that is not uh, reflected in the queue. Uh, for instance, uh, the clinic now only provide uh, extraction services. So uh, there are many uh, elderly, they want to have uh, feelings, uh, they want to have a denture, uh, they, they don't have uh, nowhere to queue. So uh, ma- many demand is actually not reflected. So even if you improve the queuing, uh, the, the ticket system, there, there are still a lot of uh, unmet demand. And uh, if the system is improved a bit, uh, I worry that the queue will get even even longer because uh, man, more, many more people will show up because it's, it's easier, it's, it's less painful to queue. Is it right that, I mean, when the border with China used to be open, that uh, some elderly people would travel across the border to China to get um, uh, cheaper dental care there? Yes. Uh, well, it, it, the, we have a long... Uh, been uh, lack of uh, dental services, so there is always some uh, health uh, medical refugee from from Hong Kong uh, going back to China because it's uh, more affordable in mainland for uh, dental services. So uh, another area we have to look at is the manpower supply because it, it contributes to the uh, very, very expensive uh, dental treatment um, uh, services in Hong Kong because they are so few dentists. Manpower supply, basically, because you you can't increase uh, uh, numbers who are trained locally quickly. Um, manpower supply basically means um, having a more flexible policy about um, recognition of foreign dentists, doesn't it? Just like we're beginning to have now for foreign doctors. Yes, uh, but uh, I think in, in the primary care setting, there are uh, some rooms for... Uh, professional other than dentists, like uh, dental hygienists, to have a role. And uh, because uh, sometimes uh, regular checkup could be conducted by uh, these uh, uh, allied health professions, and uh, sometimes it's uh, fairly easy. Uh, uh, Annual checkup would would do a a lot uh, for the elderly population too. So you're saying that if we are more flexible about who conducts some of these basic dental services, we could um, help clear quite, quite a, at least part of the backlog? Yes. Uh, besides treatment, there are also the need of education. And uh, we now have some uh, resources like the Committee Care Fund and uh, the uh, CSSA scheme. The, uh, we, we have the, uh, dental health resources under these schemes. So... Uh, some elderly people may uh, be uh, eligible for this uh, scheme, but they don't know how. So uh, providing education and referral to these uh, resources might also help with the queue. 
It sounds like there's a lot of work to be done. Um, Dr. Lam, how, I mean, how will you follow up on this uh, further in LegCo? Well, we have already written a letter to the, uh, the last Secretary for Food and Health uh, back in May, actually, talking, uh, discussing about the fragmentation of the dental services in Hong Kong. So in the long run, we would continue to press for, uh, as Mr. Lin has very, very um, carefully observed, a dedicated kind of uh, voucher. Uh, and those vouchers can be used by the elderly for dental checkup regularly, because as Mr. Lin mentioned, preventive care is of utmost importance. If people check their oral health regularly, annually, then the chance they develop dental caries and other serious dental problems is very much lower, and our elderly will have much better oral health. So uh, we need to promote a kind of a dedicated voucher for dental check for the elderly. And another area of concern is the education. Now, people do not have a, a high uh, awareness of checking their dental health regularly. We do have a very good system for uh, preventive uh, oral health for school children in a primary school, but that stops after primary six. So starting from form one all the way up to adulthood, people just are not aware how important oral health can be. So that's where education can come in. And we also promote that the um, children's health or the school, school children's or student dental services be extended to the secondary school. You don't need to do a lot in the secondary school um, years because people usually have very good dental uh, health in that particular uh, span of time. But what you need to do is to make sure they keep checking their oral health and as a kind of maintenance of their teeth is all that is sufficient. And that is not so lots of resources but it gives them an idea that they should continue with this kind of dental check throughout their lives. Now, we have uh, dental services for the elderly, that is the community care fund, providing some sorts of support for them to uh, uh, make a denture if necessary and related uh, procedures. Uh, we have outreach services for um, people in, living inside residential care home for the disabled persons. Um, but then we also have uh, financial support for people receiving comprehensive social security assistance. But then for people who doesn't fall into these categories, they are left out of any public health care service except those 11 dental clinics uh, that we're talking about this morning that requires a lot of queuing and perhaps also the emergency services provided in the hospital authority that caters only for the utmost emergency, such as trauma. Uh, so uh, we, we have a lack of fragmentation of the services that we have to smoothen out. We have to iron out our services. How about some of the other possible solutions that we were discussing with um, I, Mr. Lin earlier about solving um, uh, manpower problems, um, being right. more, more flexible about uh, who conducts dental consultations, that not everything has to be done by a dentist themselves, and yes. also being more, more, more liberal about uh, recognizing overseas uh, trained dentists? Yeah, that's excellent observations too. Dental hygienists are registered um, healthcare professionals. Uh, so they can provide the general public with oral checkups. 
uh, and actually they are the key personnel inside the uh, children's, I mean the school children dental health program. Uh, if we can have more dental hygienists, uh, that would be fine, provided that our population has a higher degree of awareness for dental health. Otherwise, they just sit there and nobody goes see them. So we need to do much more on education. As far as dental or dentist manpower is concerned, um, there was a manpower projection, uh, the dental, dental uh, sorry, a manpower survey in 2017, um, and there, the report showed that we have a lack of dentists in the short term uh, and medium term. And because the uh, Hong Kong U Dental School has increased their intake, so uh, the projection is that the long-term deficiency in manpower will uh, be improved. So by 2040, there will no more be any uh, deficiency in dental manpower. But that, of course, that is too long a time for us to wait. So what we need to do is to improve the uh, uh, examination for non-local dental graduates. And starting from 2015, the Dental Council has increased the uh, sitting from one sitting per year to two sittings per year for the licensing examination. And there are other procedures, other policies to improve the system so that people who pass a part of the examination can preserve their passing marks for the next uh, examination if they failed in other parts. So uh, we are also talking about the possibility of allowing overseas dentists to come to Hong Kong to practice in designated areas such as inside the government or the hospital authority without going through examinations, but that requires a change in law. And from my understanding, there has been discussion between the Dental Council and the government on an amendment of the Dental Registration Ordinance, and it is now in the pipeline, although we don't know when the government will roll it out. Is, is, is becoming a dentist a, a, a attractive career in Hong Kong? I mean, I think most people, when they, they tend to think about becoming doctors, and uh, it, maybe it's a bit unfair, but occasionally there are <coughs> jokes about how dentists are people who couldn't quite, um, couldn't quite make it as de- doctors, and so they become dentists instead, and there's, sometimes that's that sort of perception. Uh, uh, not exactly. Dentists and doctors are both medical professionals, and we see each other on equal grounds. And the, the only problem is Hong Kong is the education on dental health. That means people don't, people, people are not very aware, not keenly aware of the importance of dental health. Uh, so that is something we have to do uh, starting from primary school, teach the students well and make sure they understand the importance of dental health, um, promote kind of a uh, habit for people to go to the dentist regularly. And that's certainly in the long run uh, do lots for preventive care and dental health, improve the overall uh, oral health of our population. So it's all about education of the public uh, before education of the dentist. If you're a student, why, why would you choose to um, go, go on a dentistry course instead of on, on a, to med- medical school and uh, train? If you train as a doctor, you, you have much more flexibility in which careers, which path of me- medical practice you can do later. If you train as a dentist, you're, you're, stuck, you're, you're stuck with that one particular speciality. Well, eventually, many people start with one specialty. So I'm stuck with surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on whether you want to choose early or what you want to choose late. If you're quite certain you want to do um, procedures and surgery inside a mouth, then why don't you choose dentistry early on? Because the path is more straightforward, uh, and then you don't have to worry about 
such as, uh, well, lots of other health systems. So it is more direct. So you go in strict into a specialty that you're interested. I believe that has some attraction for a number of people. It really depends. So general medicine or the study of medicine is more general in the first six years of your education. And once you're graduated, you can say we are multi-potential, but we are not really specializing in any particular area. And it takes further many more years for us to get specialized, so it's much longer road. Uh, so if people are more committed to what they want to do, uh, then they can certainly go into dentistry in the very beginning. And uh, Dr. Lam, you, you've come up with uh, quite a few suggestions. Um, do you expect any of your suggestions uh, will be included in the upcoming policy address? I hope so. Uh, in fact, it is not all my suggestion. We've been discussing with the dental associations of Hong Kong and other dental colleagues, uh, and also the dental council members especially. So I understand that many of these suggestions are already uh, being discussed time and again with the government. Uh, by different parties and how they're going to take this forward. Uh, I really look forward to hear some of these suggestions being taken up by the new government. All right, uh, Dr. Lam, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's a medical and health services sector lawmaker, Dr. David Lam. Many thanks also to uh, Ivan Lin, a community organizer from the Society for Community Organization. And uh, also to all of you who commented or emailed back chat today. And of course, to our guest presenter, Danny Gitchings and producer Yuki. Now here's the weather. Cloudy with occasional showers and one or two thunderstorms. The thunderstorm warning is currently in force. Highs expected today of around 30 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh easterlies. At the moment, it's 28 degrees. Relative humidity, 85%. The bank wants me to click this link to confirm a transfer. A government department called and says I've broken the law. It asked me to click this link to enter login details. A new payee in my bank account? Do I need to click this link to check? Banks will never ask you to log into your internet banking account or provide personal information through links in SMS messages or email. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority reminds you, protect your personal digital keys. Beware of fraudulent links. It's now 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. An infectious disease specialist says monkeypox is not very infectious, describing it as having a much lower transmission rate than COVID. Wilson Lam was commenting after Hong Kong recorded its first monkeypox patient. A 30-year-old man flew back to Hong Kong yesterday after traveling to Canada, the United States and the Philippines. He's now in hospital isolation. Britain's new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has appointed the top positions to her cabinet, with Kwasi Kwarteng being finance minister. Earlier in her first